Hi, and welcome to Little Fictions On Air. I'm Ella Watson-Russell, your host. Each episode, Little Fictions On Air brings you the best in short Australian fiction, read by actors in our studio or recorded at one of our live session venues. In today's episode called Surreal Stories, we're bringing you two short stories with extraordinary offbeat characters. Before I play you the first story, just a warning that some of today's episode does contain strong language and confronting issues. Our first story, Ducks, is a radio play based on a short story by Miles Franklin award-winning author A.S. Patrick. The year is 1956. Melbourne is host to the Olympic Games and American literary figures Aeneas Nin and June Miller, both former lovers of Henry Miller, are living out their sometimes fractious old age in the quiet seaside suburb of Elwood. There's a smell in the air that neither of them wants to mention. Two or three gnats roam the beams of sunlight, pushing through the still air of the kitchen. No one opens the windows anymore because no one can reach them. Some days there's not much to say, so they listen to Anais's house creaking. June lives a street away in a semi-detached. On the other side of the party wall, there's a couple with babies, toddlers and rampaging boys. June says, It's like living with a large colony of possums in the walls. But it's a lovely sound the house makes as it creaks. It's the house settling. You've been here 20 years now, Anais, and the house stood here 40 before that. All time settling without being settled, that's a fair amount of restless energy. You know, I've been thinking, there's nothing special about this place. Who cares where you live? No one talks to anyone. There's no sense of community anymore. Must be the same kind of thing a dog feels when you throw him in someone's backyard for long enough. He thinks he loves it, so he defends it. I just wound up in Elwood, and I patrol these streets like they mean something to me. June tugs a plastic-wrapped package of cigarettes out of her handbag. But God, I do love this place. Anais lifts the mug full of bourbon to her face, drinks, coughs, puts it down. I don't care about any of that. You're just talking to hear yourself talk. June scratches through her thin white hair, feels her pink scalp beneath her fingers. I think I'm going bald. Cups her gigantic, sagging breasts, lifts them like she was at the market and wants to test the weight of cantaloupes. And these things keep on growing. Why? Getting this old is like stepping off the genetic map. My earlobes are going to touch my shoulders soon. No wonder no one wants to speak to you anymore. You should talk about sensible things like the Olympics. You should watch the swimming. The swimming. They should have people like me swimming. And then I'd watch. These young, half-naked seals, they all look alike. Why should I care? They've got people winning for Australia. I want someone to win for Elwood. June taps the pack of cigarettes, which she bought on her morning walk from the 7-Eleven on the corner of Broadway and Ormond. She taps them on the kitchen table for a few reflective seconds. She unwraps the plastic and realises she forgot to buy a lighter or matches. She talks around the long white cylinder of tobacco. I need something to light these. You don't smoke. I used to smoke. I was a chimney. When? When were you ever a chimney? Forty years ago. 
No use fighting the inevitable, though. Once a smoker, always a smoker. The Olympics make me want to smoke. I'm not giving you a lighter. This is stupid. And to tell you the truth, I'm feeling shame-faced drinking with you on a Sunday morning when I should probably be at church or the library. I should be respectable by now. You should be vacuuming the floor. Look at the lino. It's disgusting. What are you talking about? It's not disgusting. You and your giant breasts propped on my kitchen table are disgusting. I brought over a bag of salt and vinegar chips last week and I spilt some of the crumbs from the bottom of the bag and there they are. You didn't come over last week? Well, the week before that, which is even worse. I think they're crumbs for something else. I had nachos the other night. June gets up and begins hunting in the messy kitchen drawers for a lighter. I want to get back to my point. She opens and closes cupboard doors finds a half-eaten sandwich on a plate in one of them. In the oven, there's a burned bird carcass, charcoal, with a beak still on it. Gnats erupt from the open oven door. Anais waves at June to shut it. You look like you're about to take flight. Now, what was my point? People like you competing at the Olympics. For Elwood. Ridiculous. Don't you say anything bad about Elwood. I love this neighbourhood. They don't like to speak over the fences anymore. It doesn't matter. It's still Elwood. You should find one of those shirts. I heart Elwood. I'd buy one. I'll tell you that for nothing. But I hate it when people say I heart anything. It's I love something. Like it never used to be I heart NY, but I love New York. Now it's I heart Frankston. What's going on? Are the dyslexics taking over the world? June finds a box of matches on top of the fridge, hunts through black, burned-out matches to get one that's still got a red tip. What about I heart silence? Anais takes the bottle of bourbon from under the table and pours herself another half mug. What about I heart euthanasia? I want to keep the machines on for as long as possible. Don't believe it when they tell you I'm brain dead. I'm in there somewhere. As if anyone's going to ask me. They won't bother with machines for you. They hate smokers. It even makes your toes rot now. I've seen pictures. These days they'd pour something combustible over you and light a match. I don't believe in cremation. You can't put people in ovens. Give someone a thingamajig full of ashes. They expect you to take it home. I don't want someone's remains on top of my fridge. They should give you a commemorative ashtray at least. Where do I ash this? Anias levers herself to semi-erect standing and moves crab-like along the kitchen table and out of the room, returning a few moments later with a white plastic ashtray, the blue and red strips around its radius faded, its centre embossed with the Footscray Football Club logo. A snarling bulldog looks up through old black smolder marks. Look at this bulldog, thrown in there like that. The people who love Footscray should not be putting out their cigarettes on him. Where's the club loyalty in that? They should have used the little blue boy of Carlton Football Club or the Footscray fans or the Magpies, the Eagles and Swans, the whole menagerie. Why this poor dog who only wanted to defend something? You look like you're about to cry. Don't think about cremation. Someone has to want cremation. They don't put you in an oven like a Sunday roast. I don't like worms any better. I don't like the idea of them crawling around in there with their hungry little mouths. I don't even like gardening. 
If they could just think of a better way. I'd prefer just to vanish. Maybe the next time they're testing a nuclear weapon, they could put you underneath it. Are you losing your marbles? Australia doesn't have nuclear weapons. Well, we should. At least a few of them. Have you seen how many American tourists there are these days? They want to take over. I don't want a nuclear explosion in any case. That's just like ashes, but smaller. I like the idea of evaporation. Like a dream rising from the pillows like my head. June always thought of herself as a poetic soul. That's the way it was with Henry. He had a smile on his face and an erection. It was wonderful. Must have been thinking of me when he died. He always said I was cream and his taste of paradise this side of the Milky Way. Nah, that was just a quote. That is not a quote! Henry could be very poetic. Probably someone good, like Hemingway. Hemingway? You can't be serious. Hemingway didn't even like women. He wouldn't have known the taste of cream if you put a warm spoon of it to its lips. Didn't know cream from brim. That's why he needed to put some shotgun ventilation into his skull. That old man and his bloody sea. I swim the 25-metre pool every week. I'm still in good condition. Breaststroke, backstroke if I'm really feeling up to it. Twice a week at the St Kilda Sea Baths. In my red rubber cap that says Elwood in black letters along each side of it. Henry got the swimming cap as a secret birthday present for me many years ago. Sometimes I wear it on my walks around the neighbourhood. Take that cigarette out of your mouth. You're not even inhaling. I had this dream last night. I was walking along Addison Street and about to cross the canal when I noticed there were all these ducks floating out to sea. There were thousands of them on the smelly canal water and all of them were wearing gold medals. They were quacking the Australian National Anthem all together. It sounded terrible. As I sat there on the edge of the canal, I realised I was an old duck. And I didn't have a medal because I only wanted to compete for Elwood and everybody had thought that was stupid. This is just shameful and ridiculous. If you still had a man, shameful would still be a nice word. But you might as well be a virgin again. You probably are. You've grown a new hymen by now. Virgin? Me? I'll have you know that I got around back in my day. I was game for anything. Big boy Joe Batty said I had a healthy appetite. That's what he said. Ah, Joe. With his paint spattered overalls that looked like the night sky in a dimly lit room. And his huge hands that could crush an empty tuna can. I'd seen him do it. But on my body, he had such a delicate touch. It would rival a violinist's caress. Healthy appetite. Probably referring to all the nacho eating. They didn't have nachos in those days. Of course they did. Nachos, they've been around for... Since before Elwood. The pizzas were still in Italy, the Savlakia still in Greece, and all of that... Stuff was still in Mexico. We had fish and chips. No smelly dim sims or crappy chico rolls either. Just fresh fish in batter and chips the size of Olympic gold medals. There are pictures of Anais's husbands on the walls and in grimy photo frames arrayed on the dusty furniture. 
all of them done in by bad hearts. Something to do with the kind of love Anias put into them, June is sure. Each in their reign had exclusive rights to the walls and furniture of Anias's house. As the years of their absence went on, they seemed to have congregated, shoulder to shoulder, in friendly fellowship, as though there is one happy bed made for all four of them in the hereafter. June looks at Henry, smiling at her from the wall, from just below the dead kitchen clock, whose hands haven't moved in the ten years since Anias was last able to get onto the chair to replace its battery, and smiles back up at him. A sweet smile he would remember even in heaven. A smile that belongs to him alone. Anias's simmering silence finally breaks and she bursts out. You have never gotten over the fact that in the end, Henry chose me. Not you. Me. Anais grabs the black and white photograph of her first husband off the wall and places it between them on the kitchen table. Henry looks up at the ceiling, a wink in his eye directed at God or the clouds above. What makes you think he chose? Did he choose? Maybe he couldn't choose. Oh, Henry. That big rolling laughter of his made me want to drown in it. What are you talking about now? A real estate agent keeps telling me how good property values are now for houses in Elwood. She thinks I'm sitting on a fortune, a golden egg, she calls it. But this is Elwood. Where else could you live? That's what I'm saying. Tell her that every time she calls. This is Elwood. That was a radio play based on a short story by A.S. Patrick and performed by Joel Horwood, Eleni Schumacher and myself. You can read this story in A.S. Patrick's debut collection, The Rattler and Other Stories, published by Spineless Wonders. Our second short story today, Carrot on the Edge, comes from Comic Quest Australian author Jude Bridge and is performed by Little Fiction's regular Lauren hamilton Neal. Gordy braces himself as a small, angry child pummels his midriff. The punches don't hurt, they barely skim his carrot costume with a glancing thwack. But he wonders why the child's parents aren't dragging the sweaty tyke away. He can see the parents standing at another market stall, looking over, not worried, smiling indulgently at the little darling, whose bright blonde head is lowered as he fiercely concentrates on beating his passive, oversized orange opponent. The parents turn back to the avocados, prodding every single one with a hard fingertip and wondering why all the produce is so soft and bruised today. A blonde sibling joins the first boxer and together they give the carrot their best. Gordy isn't worried. He can absorb punches from four little ones simultaneously. It's the teenagers he has to watch out for. One quick blow from behind can send him sprawling, buckling his leafy top and damaging his acrylic shell. Given Gordy's time constraints, the last thing he wants to do when he gets home is touch up his costume with sticky orange paint. If the damage runs any deeper than a tiny chip, the shredded paper padding underneath the shell is revealed, and black newsprint mixes with orange goo. The besmirched costume needs replacing, but the stall owner, Old Lady Fisher, is tighter than the skin on a turnip. If Gordy doesn't want the job, she says, there are plenty of others who do. 
so Gordy hitches up his orange tights and braces for sneaky attacks from behind. How did I come to this? He asks himself from within his orange prison. I showed such promise as a child. I could have been anything. A dancer! Well, the tights hanging low around his crotch make a genital mockery of that dream. A male model! I'm certainly thin enough and tall enough, he thinks. If it wasn't for the acne scars and the overcrowded teeth, I could be strutting the catwalks of Milan. Or I could have been a pianist. A doctor! A big strawberry! Miles would enjoy the strawberry joke, thinks Gordy. He misses his friend, who sends long emails every day about his adventures in Bali. Miles offered to lend Gordy money for a Bali holiday so they could go together, but the thought of getting into greater debt made him feel sick. Besides, he stood to lose all four jobs if he asked for time off, therefore defaulting on his loan payments and possibly going to the big house. Gordy is so poor he can barely afford to eat. Fortunately, he smokes so he can suppress his appetite. When he runs out of cigarettes, he drinks glass after glass of water of varying temperatures for variety to dull the hunger that needs so much more than food to be quieted. Gordy's carrot shift finishes at 11.45, and his next job cleaning public toilets starts at 12. It's an impossible schedule that no one in their right mind would even contemplate attempting, but Gordy usually makes it, although from 11.30 he becomes an increasingly anxious carrot, hoping to make a fast getaway from the markets. Old Lady Fisher often wants to chat with her carrot after his shift. He is chastised for lack of body movement, for not waving your big carrot hands at the children enough, for standing too close to the produce and obscuring it, or standing too far away and being identified as another stall's mascot. Gordy wonders if all costumed vegetables are regularly reprimanded and feels sorry for Disney characters who have so much to live up to. But perhaps they in turn envy the anonymous vegetables free to invent a completely original, wacky personality. Gordy no longer has a personality. It disappeared along with his savings, his enthusiasm and his wife last year. The financial crippling started with an email. This was unusual in itself because Gordy hadn't desperately or drunkenly encouraged friendship from this person in order to receive at least one email that wasn't from Miles each day. Although both Gordy and Miles sign up for every single internet opportunity to make a new friend, their inboxes checked between 15 and 18 times a day using a dial-up connection are often empty. So Gordy could hardly believe his eyes when the email from a new friend arrived. By mighty coincidence, he had exactly the same name as a billionaire who had just been murdered in Nigeria. It transpired that as the dead person had no relatives, his fortune would be absorbed by the bank as unclaimed funds, unless Gordy Jones III was to active next of kin and get a share of the billions for his trouble. All that money, because of his name. (sighs) Unbeknownst to his wife or even Miles, he supplied the bank account details as requested, because the billionaire's money had to be transferred into Gordy's account in Australia. Gordy waited breathlessly for his fortune to arrive, the secret beating warm and thrilling in his heart. When he next checked his bank account, anticipating a deposit of $235 million, it had been drained, as had his credit card, his Christmas fund, and his son's junior kangaroo saver account. 
Shortly after the Nigerian debacle, Gordy resigned from his position as a charity worker, feeling it wasn't safe to work with money anymore, as he hadn't had the nous to reject a Nigerian fortune and project the junior kangaroo saver. He became a carrot, a toilet cleaner, a telemarketer, and a swimming pool attendant, non-active division. Today he is running extra late. In a complete departure from her usual bitchy self, Old Lady Fisher has given him two plastic bags full of nearly rotten tomatoes, which she slowly picked out one by one while telling him about her hernia. He won't have time to change before dashing across the freeway to the toilets, but he is grateful for the slightly wet bags of tomatoes. They'll cover breakfast, lunch and dinner until Wednesday, if he doesn't binge tonight. There will be diarrhoea, but food is food. And he has half a bag of weevilled flour at home to thicken the tomatoes into a paste and live high on the hog for a few days. Leafy head under his arm, sloppy bags dangling from his orange begloved hands, he runs as fast as his low-slung tights will allow towards his car. The pointed end of his costume dangles rudely between his legs, hampering movement still further. He pushes the car seat back as far as it will go. Unable to bend at the waist, he forces his stiff form between the wheel and the seat, tossing gloves, tomatoes and carrot head into the passenger seat. The key slides into the ignition, snickety-snack and... Cough. Cough. (sighs) Silence. Sometimes the engine doesn't catch the first time. Gordy tries again and gets a death rattle. Sometimes the engine doesn't catch the second time. And again... The engine splutters into life. Gordy plants his foot on the accelerator. Great clouds of white smoke billow into the face of a peachy-cheeked child who is standing in the car park. His mother waves away the smoke with angry hands and gives Gordy the finger. Gordy puts on his sunglasses and pretends not to notice. Fortunately, the woman can't read his number plate as he has smeared black paint over it, anticipating similar scenarios. The car takes a while to warm up, even on this scorching hot day. Gordy's feelings towards the car are generally sympathetic. It was the only thing he was allowed to keep after the Nigerian nightmare, as it was considered to be without monetary value. The intermittent non-starting issue has long puzzled mechanics, electricians and Cousin Bob, known to be good with cars. Parts that have been replaced include, but are not limited to, Starter motor, carburetor, oil pump, distributor, timing belt, fan belt, fuel filter, eight times, and radiator. Gordy squeals out of the car park, billowing smoke. Once on the freeway, he lights a cigarette to calm his nerves. The car is making a rattling noise, but he chooses to ignore it, for now. It is also rapidly losing power. He is travelling at 60 kilometres per hour in a 100 kilometre speed limit area. People swear at him and beep, but when they speed past and see he is just a carrot, all anger is forgotten and they laugh. Children turn in their seats to stare at the funny human-headed carrot driving a car. Gordy flicks his cigarette butt out of the window. Buffeted by the wind, it gleefully dives back in and lands on his thigh. The thick nylon tights enjoy the smouldering butt, melting in a quick circle and adhering moltenly to his leg hair. Then his skin. 
Panicked, Gordy bats at the butt with his hands, accidentally flicking it up into his carrot chest. Like the tights before it, the carrot is fond of fire and the shredded newspaper burns enthusiastically. The still-alight butt deftly slips down between the steering wheel and the costume and creates a jolly niche for itself. Gordy screams and swings the wheel violently to the left, planning to stop in the emergency lane. But the wheel says no, not interested. As it has soared through the burning paper, wadding and hooked itself within the wire frame beneath. Going straight ahead is the only option. Gordy sees flames. His foot is flat on the accelerator to avoid being rear-ended as the smoky car has slowed to a steady 45 kilometres. No doubt hoping for yet another fuel filter and a good flushing. An enormous black four-wheel drive is bearing down from behind, horn blaring. Gordy decides he will not die like a burning sardine in a tin. Uh, can now sauntering along at 30 kilometres. His thigh sizzles with pain. With the strength of half a man, Gordy digs into his costume, into his burning carrot stomach, and pulls at the wire, fingers burning, laying waste at his flaming costume. The steering wheel is freed sufficiently to lunge left and to safety in the emergency lane. Gordy's thigh and stomach are throbbing and there is a strong smell of burnt flesh. As there's no water in the car, Gordy improvises. He stretches as far as his costume will allow, grabs some soft tomatoes and mashes them into his burns, making them sting to high buggery. The flames die in the pasta sauce. Gordy passes out from pain, exertion, and malnourishment. Later, he becomes vaguely aware of assorted uniforms and voices. Can't see where the blood's coming from. Carrot looks burnt. Self-harm? Severe blood loss, torso and thigh, visible blood clots, doesn't seem possible. Carrot fused with steering wheel. And seat. It's not blood, Pete, it's tomatoes. Look, he's got a whole bag of them. Carrot and tomatoes, let's make a stew. Shut up, Pete, it's not funny. Cut the carrot out of the car. Gordy regains consciousness for a few seconds and whispers to a paramedic. Need to clean. Toilets. Can you drop me off? Railway toilets. Filthy on a Sunday. The paramedic smooths Gordy's wrinkled forehead with a calming hand. You're badly burnt, mate. You need to relax. We'll get you to hospital. Forget the toilets. Get the carrot off me! Get it off! It burns! Screams Gordy hysterically. The paramedic shoots morphine into Gordy and he slumps. It's going to be okay, mate, the paramedic says softly, thinking of the months of skin grafts and rehabilitation Gordy will have to endure. Gordy's reddened eyes flick open briefly. Tell me again, he says. Tell me I'll be okay. I don't want to be a vegetable for the rest of my life. That's all we have time for this week. We hope you've enjoyed Surreal Stories. Do let us know what you think of our show. We'd love your feedback. You can find the contact details on the 2RPH website. I'm Ella Watson-Russell, your Little Fictions on Air host. This episode was produced by Spineless Wonders publisher Bronwyn Meehan. And our sound engineer is Chester Chu. Bye for now. <laughs>